0: Your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter number one, the book of Ephesians and chapter number one in your Bibles this morning. Ephesians chapter number one, wonderful church that was established on the uh, during the missionary journeys of the apostle Paul in the city of Ephesus, and now years later, God sends a letter to this church. I want us to read some of chapter number 1. By the way, if you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles we have around the uh, auditorium for our guests, you should find that at page number 696, page 696. And uh, we're going to read the first uh, about a half of uh, chapter number 1. Uh, a wonderful testament to our God uh, and uh, his blessings in our lives. Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. According as he hath chosen us in him... "...before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through His blood." And which are on earth, even in Him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him, who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will, that we should be to the praise of His glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted. After that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of His glory. Take our Bibles and turn to Luke 22. Gospel of Luke chapter 22 in your Bibles this morning. We have an amazing God worthy of being praised. To the praise of the name of God the Father, to the name, to the, pra- to the praise of the name of God the Son, and to the praise of the name of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1 implores us to brag on God, to bless His name, and uh, He is an amazing God. Luke chapter 22 in your Bibles this morning. So I was thinking about the portion of Scripture we're going to be uh, considering this morning. I was uh, found myself thinking about uh, Greater Vision, Southern Gospel uh, Trio, and Rodney Griffin, uh, their hymn writer that uh, writes a lot of the songs that they sing. And uh, Rodney Griffin wrote a song entitled, He'd Still Been God. Most of Rodney Griffin's songs that he's written over the years have been songs that uh, revolved around a particular story in the Bible. A particular event in the Bible. and uh, And this song is no different, but rather than a particular event, he wrote about a series of events. Events that we would call miracles. You know, a lot of people put a a lot of attention, give a lot of attention to the miracles that Jesus Christ performed. Uh, Causing a withered hand to be made whole. Uh, Causing a lame leg uh, to the atrophied muscles to come back strong and healthy. Uh, Miracles of a, a violent storm immediately calming down. To a whisper. Even causing a man that had been dead for days. To come out of the grave. And be unwrapped from his grave clothes. And find him alive and well. The miracles of Jesus Christ were profound miracles. They are worthy of our attention. But there's something more important about the miracles. And that's what Randy uh, Roddy Griffith wrote this song about. He wrote the song about the comparison of the miracles to the person. And the most important thing was not the miracle that he performed, it was the fact that he was God and could perform that miracle. Careful students of the word of God know that every miracle Jesus performed, he performed as an illustration of the fact that he is God. That he fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies of God becoming human. And as God in human flesh, he maintained all of the power of his deity. He had power over nature. He could tell the wind to stop blowing, and it obeyed him. He could tell the storm to stop, and it stilled itself. He could tell a withered hand to be strong, and it was immediately restored. He could tell a man who'd been dead for four days to come out of the grave, and he walked out resurrected from the dead. He could tell the demons to come out of an individual. And the demons obeyed their God and came out of the individual. Well, that caught the attention of Rodney Griffin, and so he wrote the song. He'd still been God. The chorus, the words of the chorus go like this. After the verse had sung about miracles that he performed the course said but he'd still been god if he, even if he'd never calmed a storm on a raging sea he'd still been god even if he'd never caused a blinded eye to see he'd still been god even if he never brought a crippled man to his feet it's not about what he did it's all about who he was Because even if He'd never come and done a single miracle, Jesus would have still been God. The portion of God's Word that we're looking at this morning brought the reality of Jesus' deity to the forefront as the purpose of His execution and murder. Jesus always has been was on earth, is today, and always will be eternal God. He had no beginning, he'll have no end. He was not created like an angel, like the Mormons teach, like the cults teach. Jesus Christ always has and always will be eternal God. And that caught Rodney Griffith's heart. And it reminds us all that all of the amazing miracles Jesus performed were not performed merely out of compassion to rid people of physical problems. He never went to lepers' colonies and emptied leopard colonies. He never went to a place where masses of sick people were and healed them all. His miracles were not merely compassionate acts of kindness to hurting people. Every miracle was designed to prove that He is God performing and answering and fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament of what God the Messiah would do when He became man to redeem mankind from their sin. You know, there's a dearth of understanding even amongst Christianity today, as to who Jesus is. And so it's important for us to ask ourselves the question, Who is Jesus Christ? Do I know who He is? And what impact does it have on my life, what I know about the identity of the person of Jesus Christ? The bluff, the bottom line up front on your little worksheet, this morning simply states that life begins with knowing who Jesus is. And it really does. Coming to know Jesus Christ as the eternal God who became man, bore my sin, and died in my place, and paid for my sin debt, that I could be forgiven, an act that only God could do to forgive sin. That was the beginning of life for me. Now, last week we were looking at Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. We learned that the Gethsemane was a stone. It was a huge weight that was placed on top of burlap bags, if you would, of olives that had been broken. And the weight of the Gethsemane would crush the life oil out of the olive, the major product of Israel. And there in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Gethsemane of my sin weighed down and crushed Jesus Christ. Last week we followed Him through the Garden of Gethsemane and tried to catch some of the emotion of what it was like when Jesus felt the pressure of becoming sin in order to forgive the sinner, the weight Of my sin that crushed him. The thought of what it was going to be like for God the Father to turn his back and abandon him. As he became me. That episode in the Garden of Gethsemane ended with Jesus Christ being arrested. And bound up. And then led captive in the middle of the night. After midnight to stand trial and to be executed. Now there are some some things that we need to understand contextually to be able to appreciate what is contained in the portion of scripture we're looking at this morning. So we're going to I want to share with you some things about the location that this occurred, about the number of trials that Jesus Christ endured, and then a little bit about the political and re- religious Machinery of Annas and Caiaphas. Let's start with the locations. The, um, last week we were over here in the Mount of Olives where Jesus Christ went into the Garden of Gethsemane where the olive press, the Gethsemane, was. And there Jesus Christ endured the pressure. He endured the the, the expectation, the preparation for the, what he was going to endure as the weight of my sin was put on his On his back. Now, this is right across the Kidron Valley from the temple platform. The location they took Jesus to for his examination was in this area of the city, of the old ancient city of Jerusalem. So we're off the southwest side of the temple platform in the southwest part of the city. There's an aerial view. This aerial view will show us today. The Temple Mount, as it exists today, right across the Kidron Valley, the Garden of Gethsemane, and it locates where the ruins were were discovered. And in the 1970s, a renowned uh, archaeological architect named lean Ritmeyer uh, did a did a lot of work in this quadrant of this southwest quadrant of the city of Jerusalem, the ancient city, and um, and located the foundations, the ruins of a first century, a time of Christ uh, palace that was enormous in size, that contained uh, about four different levels. It was dug down into the bedrock underneath uh, the ground level. This next uh, slide shows you today that they built a building on top of where they have excavated. This shows an external, ex, uh, exterior view of uh, of where uh, things were dug down into the bedrock. And they actually uh, uh, discovered the, the uh, ritual baths uh, down, a couple of layers down, underground, dug into the bedrock. They found cells where people would be kept. Uh, they found the, in, in the um, ruins and, uh, of the building that it was uh, obviously uh, owned and lived in by some very wealthy aristocratic people. And it had all the markings of being a place where the high priests lived and where the high priests conducted their business. They found different residences connected by an open courtyard. All of this was discovered and researched. Now, if you go to Israel today, you would find this building. And this next slide shows the building from the outside. This is the building that is built on top of the ruins. And uh, even with a black cross on top of it, black because this was the location where Peter denied his Lord. Then with a golden rooster on top of the black cross because this is where the rooster crowed or It was in this part of the city where a rooster crowed, and Peter realized that what Jesus had told him would happen had, in fact, happened. And so there's an open courtyard over on this side, and this next picture shows the courtyard, and uh, you can see you're right off the wall of the temple platform. There's the Dome of the Rock today and the temple platform, and then the excavations and the building on top of the excavations, uh, of this area a statue showing Peter being questioned by a woman and Peter's denying this next slide shows a little bit of a, a closer up and Peter is denying I don't even know him I don't know anything about him and all of a sudden uh, a rooster crows and Peter so all of this if you go to when you go to Israel and visit Israel you'll be taken to this palace of Caiaphas the high priest's home and you'll see uh, these uh, These things, ruins. On the inside, you'll even be taken to the inside and you'll go down on this next slide. You'll go down and you'll go into the subterranean uh, uh, rooms cut out of the solid bedrock uh, where uh, those who believe that this was the home of Caiaphas and Annas and that the courtyard that joined the residences together was the courtyard where Peter warmed his hands by the fire that the rooms down underneath would have been places where perhaps Jesus was even held between trials there during the night. And you would go into those rooms, you would uh, you would uh, visit those as archaeological ruins. Outside all of this, this next slide shows a set of, st- a walkway, a staircase that leads down from the Tyrophian Valley up to this part of the city. And... Uh, according to the archaeologists that it is an original it is an authentic roadway walkway stairway from the 1st century and so it is very possible this would be one of the only places in modern Jerusalem where you could actually walk on stones that Jesus would have walked on when they led him from the garden of gethsemane up to Caiaphas and Annas houses and where he came from the upper room which was above which was up the hill from Annas and Caiaphas' uh, palace, where they would have come down these stairs when they left the upper room and went to the Garden of Gethsemane. So these are uh, places in Israel that, uh, that bear some uh, semblance of authenticity. In the ruins and in the excavations, uh, the archaeologists I mentioned um, identified a large room that has been called the reception hall, That if this is authentic, it would have been the place where Jesus Christ was tried that night. And if you're in that reception hall, you can look through uh, two doorways and you can see the courtyard. And we know that Peter, standing in the courtyard, looked up. And Jesus, from inside the room where he was being interrogated, looked out. And their eyes locked on each other. The Bible talks about that. Interesting places that you can visit in Jerusalem today. Now, the number of trials. Jesus Christ went through six different trials. You see, the push to murder Jesus was on religious grounds. Rome was not seeking Jesus for execution. The Jews were seeking Jesus for execution. The Sanhedrin, the high priests, and the... And the ruling body of the Sanhedrin were seeking Jesus' death. The ruling body of Israel that would, that would make that decision was called the Great Sanhedrin. And it was the Great Sanhedrin that was vying for Jesus' death. The Roman government had taken away from Israel the ability to perform capital punishment. They could not execute. They could find guilty, but then they had to turn the prisoner over to the Roman authorities. So Jesus went through three trials the night in which he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. The end of the third trial, he was then turned over to the Roman authorities. And under the Roman authorities, Jesus Christ went through three trials. And so Jesus, having been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, is facing six separate trials. Trials before his execution the next morning. Now, let's talk just a little bit about the political religious machinery of the Sanhedrin, of Caiaphas and Annas. You know, the judicial philosophy of Israel was established in the Old Testament by God. Amazing judicial philosophy. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, when Israel was just being formed by God into a nation after having been rescued from Egypt, Deuteronomy 16, the Bible says, Judges and officers shalt thou make thee in all thy gates, which the Lord thy God giveth thee throughout thy tribes. They shall judge the people with just judgment. And thou shalt not rest, or, or W-R-E-S-T, twist or pervert. Thou shalt not rest Judgment. Thou shalt not respect persons showing partiality to people. Neither take a gift, a bribe, for a gift of blind the eyes of the wise, and pervert the words of the righteous. That which is altogether just shalt thou follow. Justice was God's bottom line. Not who you are, but what is justice on the basis of what you've done. That was the criteria. Now the Great Sanhedrin was a religious body of 71 lawyers. 70 lawyers actually, and the high priest made the 71st person. This was the Supreme Court of Israel. Its size reached back to the book of Numbers, chapter 11, where God instructed Moses to select 70 men to help him with the responsibility of leading. It also reminds us of Jethro's advice to Moses to appoint men to hear cases and pass judgment on cases instead of everyone coming to Moses. By the time Jesus came around, there were Sanhedrins in villages and regions all over Israel. Every village had a Sanhedrin based on the size of the village. And then there were regional Sanhedrins. And this this was the court system of Israel where you would go and stand before a lawyer Uh, and and why lawyer because these were people of the law these were the experts in the Old Testament law that God gave them to live by and so the judges were the law experts of God's law and that's what the criteria was for uh, decisions that were made and so the Supreme Court was in Jerusalem. It was the great Sanhedrin. All the rest were just Sanhedrins. But then the great Sanhedrin was in Jerusalem. It was the Supreme Court of the land of Israel. To be on the Sanhedrin, you had to work your way up through very good service in lower courts. And if you did really good in lower courts, you might someday be on the Supreme Court the great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. The 71 people who would hear matters of great significance. Now the judicial philosophy that developed over the years in the operation of Israel's Sanhedrins obviously had the roots in the Mosaic law given at Mount Sinai. And, uh, and the, the uh, jurisprudence that resulted was based on justice. And it erred on the side of mercy. And it had many safeguards that reduced any possibility of an innocent man ever being found guilty of something he or she did not do. The levels of safety measures were amazing. I, I was reading and, and studying a little bit about the, the judicial philosophy, the jurisprudence of the great Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel. And it was just really Amazing. It makes the American judicial system look like we'll we'll, we'll make anyone guilty and and, uh, and find them guilty and put them in jail or whatever. I mean, they, they erred on the side that nobody could ever be found guilty unless they really were guilty. And the levels of safeguards were unbelievable. Their uh, jurisprudence has been known to have been far more advanced than any civilization at the time, and also even greater than America's current system. The great Sanhedrin guaranteed that if you've been accused of something, you will have a public trial that's open to anybody who wants to come and watch the trial. That you will be supplied with a defense someone who will defend you before the great Sanhedrin, and there must be at least two or three credible witnesses who testify to your guilt. And if there's not at least two or three credible witnesses, you cannot be found guilty regardless of any circumstantial evidence. And to further safeguard that, If you witnessed some fact, if you gave witness to something that was later found to be false, that you lied under oath, you as the false witness automatically received whatever penalty the person you lied about would have received had that person been proved guilty. So if it was a capital offense... And if the person accused is guilty and will be put to death for his crime, if you testify falsely and it is discovered that you've testified falsely, then you will be put to death for your false witness. If that was the end result of the person that you lied about, of what would happen to them if they were guilty. I mean, it was the jurisprudence was amazing. However, in Jesus' day, the great Sanhedrin had become a very corrupt group of men. The 70 positions, in addition to the high priest in Jesus' day, were obtained by political favors and payoffs of money. You bought your position, you earned political favors and were awarded your position. And justice was no longer the bottom line. Political expediency became the bottom line for the great Sanhedrin. It had become a corrupt organization. Now, at the head of that great Sanhedrin was the high priest. And for 20 years, Annas was the high priest. In Jerusalem, which means he was the head of the great Sanhedrin. He held that position for 20 years. And then, because of his alliances that he had made politically with Rome, he was able to make sure that position stayed in his family. And he had five sons as high priest one after another, after him. And when Jesus was tried, his son-in-law Caiaphas ...was the high priest. Annas still maintained the title... ...in addition to the acting high priest... ...which now happens to be his son-in-law. Annas not only retained the title... ...he retained the power. He was the man behind the curtain. And Caiaphas was the puppet on the string. Annas made the decisions and called the shots... His sons and now his son-in-law carried out his bidding. Caiaphas is a puppet that's operating in this story. Now during these years in which Annas and his sons were the high priests and ruled as the head of the great Sanhedrin, the supreme court of the land, they became very wealthy as a family. Their great wealth was developed because of the schemes that they created on the temple platform. They had created what was known as the bazaars, the carnivals, the bazaars of Annas. And there on the temple platform, he would sell booths to merchandisers. And they would come and they would sell animals. And if you were coming to the temple to worship Jehovah God and needed an animal slain for your sins, you bought the animal from the bazaar in the temple platform. And if you needed to pay your tithes and offerings, Annas would only accept coinage that they had minted called the temple coinage. And before you could give your tithes and offerings, you had to exchange whatever currency you brought into the temple currency that would be accepted. And, of course, all of that was done by money changers who paid Annas for the opportunity to do that. At the end of the day, Annas then skimmed off a percentage of all the transactions for animals or money exchange. And Annas became very, very wealthy. His family became very, very wealthy. He was in an aristocracy, if you please, an aristocratic family of great wealth and power and prestige, ruling Jerusalem as the high priest of the supreme court of the land. (laughs) Maybe not too much different than what... We live with today in America where politicians are voted into office and then they use their office to become multimillionaires. And we pay them pensions for the rest of their life and make them multimillionaires and aristocracy in America. That was life in Jerusalem in Jesus' day. That's why twice Jesus went into the temple and was filled with anger at the political schemes that were being conducted in the name of religion and kicked over money tables and and opened up pins of animals and and took cords and made them into a whip and, and hit people and hit animals and drove them off the temple platform. He was angry at what Annas had done. And he declared, You have taken my house of prayer And you've turned it into a den of thieves. Jesus was a threat to Anna's power. Jesus was a threat to Anna's wealth. Anna's family, Caiaphas now as the acting high priest, their future power, prestige, positions of authority and wealth. Demand that Jesus Christ be killed, lest they lose all that they have gained over the years. In John chapter 11, we read that uh, many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on Him. Did you notice that? That many of those who saw what Jesus did, they saw His miracles... When they saw what he did, they believed he was who he said he was. It's not what he did, it's who he is. He did what he did to point people to who he is. And when people saw what he did, they know he's God. And they believed on him. But some of them went their way to the Pharisees and told the Pharisees what Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and Pharisees a council and said, what are we going to do? This man doeth many miracles. If we let him alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. If we don't do something about this, Jesus, we're going to lose our positions. We're going to lose our power. We're going to lose our source of revenue. We're going to lose everything if we don't do something about Jesus. And then Caiaphas, one of them named Caiaphas being the high priest that same year, said, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people. Somebody's got to die. That passage in John 11 ends by saying, Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. When Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was taken to Caiaphas. The man who had earlier said, he's got to be killed. Or we lose our money, and we lose our power, and we lose our positions. He's got to be put to death. And so the scheme that would result in the murder of Jesus began with the great Sanhedrin, the supreme court of the land, plotting how they will kill Jesus Christ, lest they lose all that they have. The overwhelming passion to kill Jesus resulted in the religious leaders sworn to live on the basis of justice, to uphold the law, Justice now means absolutely nothing to them. Truth means absolutely nothing to them. Right means absolutely nothing to them. The only thing that matters is that politically we get rid of Jesus so that we can maintain our political power as the great Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel. That's all that matters. And as a result, what happened to Jesus the night that he was arrested ended up being a tangled mess of illegal activities that were performed by the very people sworn to uphold justice, law, and mercy. Oh, there's books that have been written on the illegal trial of Jesus. You can Google and read lists of illegal activities that that, that Caiaphas and Annas and the great Sanhedrin did that night in order to be able to get Jesus murdered that next day. Everything was illegal. Everything they did was illegal. They threw justice to the wind. They obeyed no law. They did contrary to everything they were required to do because they had one goal and one goal alone. That is the murder of Jesus for their own personal political Necessities, And so that brings us to the simple three trials that Jesus faced that night through the night. I want to just talk through them. You can't, there's no one gospel that gives you the whole story. They, there are bits and pieces of it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and in John. All four gospels record uh, something of the night in which Jesus was tried by the great Sanhedrin. None of them give all of the pieces of information. When you read all of them and put them side by side and bounce back and forth, you can put together the composite picture of what happened that night when Jesus was arrested. I want to step through that uh, and give you a little bit of a picture of what happened. It all began with Jesus being taken to Annas. Now remember, as I showed you on the pictures, it's the same place. Annas and Caiaphas lived in the same palace, the palace of the high priest there was a courtyard there it's very, it's if it wasn't that very that's the only place sizable with the, the 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 evidences of aristocracy with with the the priests multiple um uh, pools of water dug down into the bedrock, they're, they're, um, the places where they went through their ceremonial cleansing and washings before they went to the temple. Uh, this, this looks very authentic. But if it is not the exact one, there was another one somewhere there that's never been found that was just like it. And they led Jesus from the Garden of Gethsemane, but they didn't go to Caiaphas. Only John records that they went to Annas. John and John 18 records that they took Jesus Christ first to Annas. And there, Jesus Christ meets Annas. Now, no one has made any accusation against Jesus. There is nothing uh, about this event that is putting Jesus on trial for a known offense, which in itself was strictly and totally illegal. But that's, that's what unfolds. And so they take Jesus to Annas. And um, and there is he's before Annas in verse number, um, let's see. Verse number twelve of John eighteen. The the band and the captain they took Jesus, bound him, led him away to Annas. First, he was the father-in-law to Caiaphas, uh, which was high priest that same year. Now, Caiaphas was he which gave counsel. That passage I read a moment ago. And then down uh, to verse number nineteen, the high priest then asked Jesus. Of his disciples and his doctrine. Now, this is a very important first trial. They lead Jesus to Annas' residence in the middle of the night, and Annas stands before Jesus. Jesus is there with the people that had bound him and brought him, and uh, and he's standing before Annas. In all likelihood, Caiaphas is busy gathering some of the Sanhedrin to get them to the reception hall. So Annas has Jesus standing in front of him, but he doesn't have anything to accuse him of. So he asked Jesus some questions. That is illegal. Jurisprudence in Israel said that you could not self-incriminate. You could not ask the guilty person to give evidence about what they did. You must bring forth witnesses. You cannot self-incriminate an individual. But Annas doesn't have any witnesses. He doesn't even have a charge. So he goes on a fishing expedition. He's trying to find something that he can accuse Jesus of. And so he asks Jesus some questions about Jesus' disciples. Trying to find some little tidbit of information. He asks Jesus about his doctrine, what he teaches, looking for some tidbit of information that he can get. But Jesus Christ doesn't answer him a word. Jesus Christ just leaves him. I'm sorry. At this stage, Jesus' answer to him was, Why don't you ask the people that heard me what I have said? They'll be able to tell you what I've said. Don't ask me. I'm not going to tell you. You go out and get a witness. You go find some witnesses that can tell you what I've said. Which immediately left Annas embarrassed. I mean, everything he's doing is illegal. Jesus won't cooperate. And so one of his cronies standing there holds off and belts Jesus Christ in the face and says, how dare you talk to the high priest that way? And Jesus said, if I have done wrong, tell me what I did wrong. And Anne is totally embarrassed and with nothing that he can do, he sends Jesus across the courtyard to the reception hall to stand before his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And, and that is the second of the, of the trials that he went through. This last picture is just a, a depiction uh, of Jesus Christ in the reception hall with Caiaphas. And now Caiaphas is going to take over, and Caiaphas is going to bring charges against Jesus. Luke just gives a little information about this. Matthew and Mark give a lot of information about this. Basically, what happened is they, Caiaphas brought multiple witnesses, but all of the witnesses disagreed with one another. The Bible says specifically that Caiaphas sought false witnesses. They were, they were not trying to get justice. They were trying to get a murder accomplished. They were not trying to find out truth. They were trying to find an excuse to railroad Jesus into the Roman sphere because only the Romans can execute an individual. And so they, Caiaphas brings multiple witnesses. They don't agree. They finally get two witnesses, but Mark says they didn't even agree. One of the witnesses says, well, I remember he said a couple of years ago, it, the quote that he gave came from a couple of years ago, uh, I remember Jesus said that, uh, that if this temple were, was torn down, the great Herodian temple that hadn't even been finished yet, they'd been building it for 40 years and it wasn't even finished yet, that Jesus said if this building gets torn down, I can build it up without any hands. I can build it up in three days. Of course he was talking about his body. If this temple of my body is destroyed, I will resurrected in three days, but they quoted that. The two witnesses that remembered that didn't remember it correctly. One of them said, uh, he said, I'm going to tear it down. Someone said, if it gets torn down, and they didn't agree. that There was no cooperation between the witnesses. When nothing would work, when all the witnesses were false witnesses and no one corroborated the stories of one another, Caiaphas, frustrated as his father-in-law was, knows that they're not looking for justice. They're looking for an excuse. And so he looks at Jesus Christ and he cuts to the issue at hand. He said, Are you the Christ, the Son of God? Matthew records it. Mark records it. Caiaphas asked straight forward, Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus, who had not cooperated, He had no legal responsibility to cooperate. He had no reason in jurisprudence to self-incriminate himself. He wouldn't cooperate with either Annas or Caiaphas. They were frustrated. Caiaphas demands. And he even put him under oath. He says, I adjure thee under oath. Like what we do today when you put your hand on the Bible and you swear to tell the truth, whole truth, nothing but the truth. They put Jesus Christ under oath. And Caiaphas said, I adjure thee by God. And in the face of Almighty God, who knows the truth from error, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus looked back at him. Matthew records him saying, you say that I am. Which was a Jewish euphemism that acknowledged the accuracy of the statement that was made. We would say today, you said it. Are you the Christ? You said it. Jesus agreed with him. Mark records that Jesus also said, I am. And he used that great name for God that goes all the way back to the burning bush with Moses. When God said, I am, that I am. And Jesus Christ said, I am. And identified himself with Creator God, Jehovah God, From Moses' burning bush, I am the Son of God, the Messiah that I claim to be. Oh, did that make Caiaphas mad? Caiaphas immediately ripped his garments. He said, what need we of any further witnesses? We have heard it with our own ears. This man blasphemed God. That's important. Because he was asked, "Are you the Son of God?" And some people today, not knowing the Word of God and not knowing the uh, the, the understandings, the m- mental faculties of the Israeli people to whom Jesus ministered, they try to say, "Well, he didn't say he was God. He said he was the Son of God." That was the same thing to every Jew. There is no distinction. When Jesus Christ was asked, are you the Son of God, the Messiah? And Jesus Christ said, I am. You said it. Jesus Christ was saying, I am the God of the burning bush. I am eternal God. Caiaphas immediately ripping his clothes saying, blasphemer, blasphemer. What need we of any further witnesses? You've heard with your own ears. This is a game changer. Because in Jewish law, to blaspheme God was a capital offense. Not Roman law, but Jewish law. For a human being to claim to be God was to blaspheme God. And that's worthy of death. And Jesus Christ just said, I am. That's a game changer. Immediately, Caiaphas says, we're done. Case over. He asked the Sanhedrin, what say ye? And they all shouted out, guilty of death. Which is interesting because in their jurisprudence, everyone had to vote. And if it was a unanimous vote, a unanimous vote was was immediately rejected for fear that a unanimous vote indicated a conspiracy to railroad somebody so if it was a unanimous vote from the great sanhedrin it was considered to be not trustworthy and would be rejected that was their jurisprudence at the time but they that with all the other illegalities that went out the door and uh and he's everyone all the sanhedrin said he's guilty of death now the big question is had jesus claimed this in his life and ministry oh yes certainly uh, luke records in luke chapter 4 in the early part of his ministry, uh, he had soon after he had been uh, baptized and then tempted in the wilderness for forty days. Then Jesus Christ went to a, a synagogue in Nazareth, and he was given the scroll of Isaiah and he read. He opened it up to Isaiah sixty-one and he read from Isaiah sixty-one, and it was a me- it's a messianic prophecy about what the Messiah would do. Jesus read what the Messiah would do, he rolled it up and he looked to the people in the synagogue at Nazareth and he said, that was just fulfilled today by me. And they got so angry, they knew what he was claiming. He was claiming to be God. They took him out to the edge of a cliff to throw him off a cliff to kill him. And he escaped out of their hands. Jesus did claim to be God. When Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman at the well and the Samaritan woman at the well said, we know that Messiah comes and when Messiah, who is called the Christ, will come, he will show us all these things. And Jesus looked at the woman at the well and he said, I am he. Yes, Jesus claimed to be God because he is God. Only God can forgive sins. If Jesus is not God, I'm still in my sin on my way to hell. Only God can forgive sin. And Jesus Christ is God in human flesh to go to the cross of Calvary and pay the price for our sin that we might have eternal life. Immediately, the Sanhedrin began to spit in Jesus' face. You talk about illegals. You talk about uh, uh, just a setting aside of everything in ju- their own jurisprudence. They begin to spit in his face. They began to hit him in the face. They began to slap his face. They began to mock him. Someone grabbed a rag and they tied it around his eyes and they hit him in the face. And they said, if you really are who you claim to be, tell us which one of us hit you that time. Somebody else would slap him on the face. If you really are, tell us which one of us hit you that time. And all this is going on in the reception hall at about 2 o'clock in the morning. And Peter is right through two open doorways on the patio warming himself, being questioned as whether he's one. And he can hear the ruckus. He can look through the doorways. He can see what they're doing to Jesus Christ. When the Sanhedrin got tired of their mockery, their servants picked up and began. And they mocked, and they ridiculed, and they beat the face of Jesus Christ. Here's our Supreme Court. Here's our esteemed lawyers of the land. Here are the ones who care not about who you are. They only care about justice for what you did. But the hatred of Jesus Christ is so deep that all they care about is how to get this man murdered tomorrow. Horrible scene. That went on for, we don't know how long, at some point it stopped. Perhaps they put Jesus in one of those places in the basement of the Palace of the High Priest, we saw the picture of. And they waited for daybreak, because you know what? It's illegal to have a trial at night. So they have to wait till the sun comes up. And then they have to get the Sanhedrin together again. And then they have to make the charge again. Then they have to vote again in order to be able to have a so-called legal trial from which they can then send Jesus to the Roman authorities. And so the final level of trial was after the break of day. And it's recorded in our text in Luke chapter 22, verses 66 to 71. And there in the light of day, they went through the motions. They declared Jesus guilty of blasphemy against God. And they sent Him off to the Roman authorities. The... Supreme Court of Israel had accomplished their devilish deed. They had found Jesus guilty of blasphemy, worthy of death, without one witness, in the middle of the night, without any authority. But they accomplished what they intended to accomplish, and now Jesus will go to the Roman authorities. Who is Jesus Christ to you? Is Jesus Christ just another guy who lived and died 2,000 years ago? A, teaching, a teacher whose teaching went astray and who brought on the awful punishment of death into his life? Or is Jesus Christ eternal God who became human Because humans sin and as sinners against God, God cannot forgive our sins. Because God is a just God and He does not slap hands and say, oh, don't do it again. Sin has to be paid for. And Only God can make a way possible for sin to both be paid for and forgiven. And the only way God can do that is for God to become man. To take the place of man. To suffer the judgment of man. And once he personally has suffered the judgment of man, he then can say to the man whose sins he had paid for, I now forgive you. You can live as if you've never sinned. And that's what the word justified means. Just as if you would never sinned. He who knew no sin became sin. That we who are sinners might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Only God can do that. Do we really believe that Jesus is God? That's the foundation of our ability to get saved. If you're here today and you've never wrestled through who Jesus Christ is, Maybe, maybe you were taught that Jesus Christ was like an angel or he was just another man, another teacher, another preacher. If that's true, you will die and go to hell because God cannot forgive your sin. He is a holy God. He cannot forgive your sin unless he personally suffers for your sin. And then and only then can he forgive you of your sin. Have you ever come to the point in your life where you know that Jesus Christ paid for your sin and offered you forgiveness forever because of what he did for you? That's the million dollar question.